0: Dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic: Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by The Witness, a Black Christian collective. I am your host Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Burns Clan. Please follow at your own risk. Joining me, as always, is the founder of The Witness. He has a very extensive bio. He is the man, the myth, the legend, the two-time best-selling author, Mister Bluecheck verified himself. Dr. Jamar Tisby, what's going on, man?
1: Uh, Not going to lie, brother, it feels a little bit like deja vu, like what we're about to talk about. We may be covered in 2015, 2016, 2017, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, and now in 2023 as well.
0: You know, I hope people recognize that my energy is much lower in this intro. Normally, I'm filled with lots of joy. Normally, I'm filled with lots of prophetic fire. Normally, we get the opportunity to give a space for people to process things in a humor-filled way, in a Christ-centered way. Today, I am feeling very burdened. Mm -hmm. As you all, hopefully most of you know this, but we record a lot of our episodes in a batch. And so we don't always get the opportunity to respond to things as they're happening. After this previous batch of recordings that we had, we wanted to actually give more space to just come on and present our unfiltered thoughts on any number of issues that consistently happen in our culture, specifically the targeting of and the dehumanization of Black life. And this happened literally as we we're recording this yesterday, um, when or excuse me, two days ago, um, when a young man who's 21 years old, uh, decided that he was going to go into a Dollar General store in Jacksonville, Florida, and claim the lives of three black human beings created in the image of God. We'll talk about the backstory of how he got there before, what he did before he got there at the specific Dollar General location. But what we do know is that this young man left racist writings, he used racial slurs, and he also. Emblazoned swastikas on his assault rifle before he actually used it to kill uh, black bodies. Jamar, it's just, there's so much that can be said, so much that we can say. Honestly, it feels deeply surreal. It feels surreal on the level of here we go again, the deja vu element. It feels surreal on the level of this is Florida. It feels surreal on the level of the shooter's age. I'm feeling all the emotions and almost in this, you know, racial uh, oppression fog. Mm. Even as I talk about it, like I feel the fog of these lives claimed. And I, I want to read these, these names Angela Mitchell yeah. Carr, Anolt Joseph, AJ Laguerre Jr., and Ger- Gerald Galleon, 52, 19, and 29. Um, all created in the image of God, all beautiful. And I'm feeling the fog, Jay. I have to be honest. I'm feeling the fog of talking about this again, but I wanted people to just have this safe space of being able to process this from a Black Christian perspective. And so that's why we're on. But, But what are you feeling right now?
1: I'm glad you said their names. Uh, Like you said, these are human beings made in the image of God. They are brothers and sons, and mothers and sisters. And you know, two of these folks, uh, AJ and Gerald, are younger than we are. And then 52 is way too soon, right? Yes. So just remembering the human impact of this the community impact of this. So we will, in the rest of the country, move on in terms of a news cycle and attention. I think there's something that that weighs on us and that remains with us nationwide as Black people, but we'll get on with our day-to-day. Meanwhile, this community, they'll never be able to look at that Dollar General the same again. They'll be mourning the loss of their loved ones and community members for years to come. Uh, as as shook as we are on the microphone we can only imagine what the people in that local community are experiencing in terms of the trauma and the fear and i just got to say this is how terror works hmm. terror terror is n- does not rely on massive numbers all it takes for terror is isolated, I won't say isolated, but acts of violence that are seemingly small in scale. Three lives is immeasurably, uh, uh, an immeasurable loss. But when when you think about the millions of black people nationwide, you don't have to commit a personally violent act against all millions of us. The only thing you have to do is randomly target our communities, our shopping areas are the places that we frequent, and it 's enough to instill in anyone just that just that concern, just that look over your shoulder, just that bang, what was that loud noise was was that was that a gun what was that that 's how terror works, and this is an act of racial terrorism because it not only affects the local communities the three people killed, their families, but Black people nationwide, which is something that I'm not sure other people truly understand. And it's just that much more weathering that we have to endure because of racism.
0: You know, the reports tell us that the shooter left his home around 1130 on Saturday, and he was actually headed to Edward Waters University. It's a University that is a private HBCU that actually was his original target. Uh, According to the university president and the CEO, uh, Zachary Faison, he said that immediately a student flagged down a security person when he saw the shooter because he looked out of place. And within less than a minute, I believe they said, Uh, They had identified him, called the authorities, and made sure that he was out of that space, and which was really important because, you know, the president said that that action alone probably saved dozens of lives. Uh, It's it's chilling to think that this could have been far worse when he walks into the Dollar General, according to the authorities. He didn't shoot everyone there. He let some people out. He shot someone or he shot at people in the parking lot or shot someone in the parking lot. I'm not quite sure which, but then lets people out, a mixed group of people out and they don't know why. But again, now people have to live with the terror of survival.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now people have to
0: live with, have to live with the survivor's remorse of why didn't he shoot me it's akin to uh the woman who was left alive at the Charleston AME shooting mm. um by Dylan Roof to tell people what happened right and what is striking about this is it is no debate there are there are no and, and I'm sure you know there are people who do that and uh, on the but there is zero debate about whether or not this was racially motivated right That this was his express intention to kill black people. And I have so many questions. And I think the first question I want to ask is if he lived with his parents, did no one clock the fact that someone who had violent racist intentions lived under their roof? I I'm not, you know, I, I understand you can you can be in the same home, not know who you're with, whatever it may be. I don't know how much interaction they had, but how is it that you are in such close proximity to violent racist intentions and you don't recognize it? Mm. Could it be Mm. that the society we live in desensitizes us to racism so much so that we excuse violent racist tendencies and offhanded comments as simply Mm. weird and quirky behavior and not a sign of deep alarm that is going to put entire communities and yes, even a country of people, a demographic of people at extreme risk? Could it be that we have minimized racism so much in our world, and especially in the American South, that we don't even clock when someone has violent racist intentions? I mean, you're living in the same house as this person who Got a rifle, legally purchased a rifle. Despite his history of being Baker acted, despite all these things, he legally purchased a rifle. It doesn't make sense, but at the same time it does because this is the country that we live in, deeply sick, deeply damaged, deeply broken, and irreparably racist.
1: Hmm. It is concerning. It makes me wonder. And, and it, I, I don't say this to cast aspersion on the parents. We don't know them. We don't know anything about
0: Absolutely them. not. It's just so, sh- that's striking. strike it, you know? Right, it's just right. so like, wow, it's literally in your own home. It begs the question
1: what was being done proactively, right? Like, by now, we know that young white men are susceptible to these kinds of ideologies. I think it is incumbent in white families to sit down with everyone, but especially their young white men, and talk about racial ideologies, about suicide and depression, which are affecting young white men at astronomical rates. Um, But these things like like, like that we have statistics on – there's a human element to them. And, and I don't know if this could have been prevented by having a talk or whatever, but it does bring up the question, what are we as society, what are we as communities doing proactively, not reactively, to address racial ideologies that seem to have a strange hold on not all, but many, a concerning number of young white men. That's something that we have to deal with. The other thing that, ha- that, that really stands out here um, is, like you said, we know precisely the motivation. This is one of the reasons why I think it has captured national attention to the extent that it has for however briefly it holds is because there's a literal manifesto. And that manifesto is full of racist, white supremacist ideas and violence and all of these things. So it's one of those, I wish it was more rare, but it's one of those cases where we know the motivation. Can you imagine if if, if there hadn't been that manifesto? All of the people who would be saying, well, we don't know if this was racially motivated. We don't know anything about this young man. And now we have his own words. We have swastikas drawn on the killing machines that he used. And we know for certain what he did. And the question now is, well, what are we going to do about that? What are we going to do about the next person? And here's the tricky part, the insidious part. A lot of the narrative in the media is that this young man acted as a, quote, lone wolf. They that's love the to popular use
0: that narrative to, that's the popular narrative,
1: don't they love to just say, "Oh, it's just this isolated individual? It's just the same way they understand racism. It's just one person with bad attitudes toward other people. It's not a systemic thing. it's not a coordinated thing, and then they'll use the same uh fallacious logic with these mass killings that are racist and say, well, it was just this individual, he was disturbed, that has nothing, it's, it's no comment on our society writ large. Here's the insidious part. You only need leaders to establish a verbal context for this kind of violence for one of the minds of people out there to hear it for what it is, a dog whistle giving permission for physical force and violence and then act on it. But then they have plausible deniability because they can say, oh, well, I never told this individual or told anyone to go out and kill people. That's – you can't accuse me of that. And yet, with your policies, with your rhetoric, with your uh, Mm -hmm. uh, shutting down uh, of of – AP African American studies, demonizing critical race theory, uh, calling everything woke. All of that creates this, this context or would like, what I like to say, a permission structure for these so-called lone wolves who act singly, but they're doing it within a context of an entire community that is approving this racist ideology and granting some form of allowance for it, uh, just by their rhetoric and, and their actions elsewhere. Yeah.
0: Well, the governor of Florida, he had a press conference at a vigil, and received a showering of booze from black people around. Some I were hope polite. he wasn't surprised. <laughs> Some were polite and talked to him, and you know they honored the office. Others were as we acknowledging do. the level to which his policies, and specifically the way in which he has structured his tenure as governor that led to a direct line. And this is something I've said publicly, and I'll restate it here. The logical conclusion of erasing Black history is the violence against Black bodies. It is a logical conclusion that as you erase, number one, not just the necessity of teaching our history, but as you erase the horrors that happened to us, you will then dehumanize Black life to the extent and to the point to where it's totally fine to do whatever it is that you feel like you need to do. And and in many ways, what I found is most people do not realize how akin that rhetoric is and how akin these types of decisions are to what we have seen as the most reprehensible forms of racism, quote unquote, in white hoods and in burning crosses. The logic that undergirded those actions is a lot of the similar logic that undergirds the decisions we have to erase Black history from curriculums. Mm-hmm. It's similar logic. It, it ties together. And there's also overlap in terms of our churches, in terms of our theology, And in terms of our Christian teaching, and so when we think about the governor making this trip, obviously he has to do that because he's the governor, but the boldness and the audacity to stand amongst Black people and say, we're not going to let them do this. What do you mean we're not going to let them do this? Who is we? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Who is we? Because you haven't been with us you stood up and said, No, it's, it's, well, we're saying, you know, this is what we're saying about slavery. You've decided that you are going to hire Prager U. You are going to use Prager U. You are going to do these types of things. And now the logical conclusion of this erasure of Black history and education is the erasure of Black bodies in real time. This is what dehumanization does it leads itself into domestic terror and violence.
1: Lord of mercy. So I think we can even t- take it a step further because th- as I mentioned with the permission structure it's it's the pernicious power of a narrative hmm. of an evil narrative. And so there is the suppression of knowledge that they're that they're doing by, you know, making it harder and harder to learn black history, African-American studies, all of those things. But we're also seeing in real time the way they construct an ideology to fit a pre-existing narrative. Hmm. They construct a rationale to fit their attitudes. So I think what's really at a a foundational level, what's being done is you have leaders on the far right who are scapegoating black people in every way possible and fear mongering around black people as they have done for centuries and then coming up with ideas, rationales, ways of thinking to justify the demonization of an entire people group. Uh so that is you can't say that, you know, Haiti is an asshole country. And why can't we get more Mm -hmm. immigrants from Scandinavian countries Mm -hmm. and not have people absorb a narrative around that? And then you come back and you follow up with, like, I still get this. this, When I posted about this uh, shooting at the Dollar General in Jacksonville, I still get people in the comments saying, well, what about black on black crime? I wish you'd talk about violence in Chicago like you talk about this. You come up with pseudo-data, pseudo-science, pseudo-facts to back up your already uh, negative ideas about Black Mm. people. And we're watching it happen in real time as politicians and leaders and and other folks are are talking about Black people in certain ways and then coming up with ways to justify that, which is another effect of suppressing information, accurate information about black people is that these myths uh, can thrive in that ignorance.
0: You know, and again, the purpose of us talking about this is not just to say there's this permission structure that relates to white supremacist violence in our country. We know this, but it is also to say this affects real lives, real families, real generational lines. There's a CNN article where one of the young victims, uh, Gerald Gallian, one of his relatives, Sabrina Rozier, said, the grieving family doesn't know how to tell his four-year-old daughter that he's never coming home. That they don't know how to tell her. And she says this quote, it's hurtful. I thought racism was behind us, and evidently it's not.
1: Mm. Oh, can we talk about the the date here? You mentioned when it happened. Which is right next to the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington. Yes. Which as we're recording it is today. And a lot of people made note that we wish, we hoped that we had come farther, but we're still talking about racist, white supremacist, anti-black violence and terrorism more than half a century later. And that's haunting. It's absolutely haunting. One of the things I wrote, I wrote uh, an article on my substack. I said, um, what if the I had a dream speech had a different title? Mm -hmm. And one of the things I said in that article was, the problem we've made with focusing on the dream is that we rip it out of a chronological context. Meaning We can either say the dream has already been achieved and it happened sometime in the past, like with the Civil Rights Act or the Voting Rights Act, or whatever you want to say, or we can say the dream will happen. "Quote one day," a day Mm -hmm. that sixty years later still has not come. come. Yeah, and and so then we find ourselves um, again and again and again fighting some of the same battles with seemingly. No progress at all, and I make the argument. Maybe we should focus on that phrase, the fierce urgency of now, and say the time is long past for us to do something about this. Let's put the emphasis on action. Uh, It's just a rhetorical shift, but that is that's where we need to be right now. So, like, I don't know. uh, My my question to you (laughs) is if you were at that. visual where DeSantis showed up. What would have been your response if you were there in person? Pass the Mic. We appreciate you.
0: Hey, everybody. This is Tyler Burns with Pass the Mic inviting you to join us for the Active Witness Challenge. You know here at The Witness, we love symbols. And the 1965 March on Selma was an activation of Christians who loved Jesus and also loved justice. They walked 54 miles for change, for civil rights, for truth, and for freedom. And we want to invite people all across the country to join us for an entire month, the month of September, as we walk, jog, run, swim, or cycle 54 miles wherever we are. Now, this serves two purposes. The obvious purpose, of course, is we are activating our faith for justice, but we are also raising money together for the crucial programs here at The Witness. You've enjoyed our podcast, our events, all the things that we offer here to encourage encourage Black Christians to be free in soul and in body. We want you to join us. You can go to thewitnessfoundation.co forward slash AWC. And here's the awesome thing. You can join teams or even create your own team and encourage people together. Let me just put in a shameless plug. I have a team this year. You can look it up. It's called Feel the Burns. I think Jamar has a team, but don't worry about that. Join my team. But I have a team called Feel the Burns, and I want you to join my team. Run or walk. I don't know what. I might be walking. This, this heat is serious. I might be walking, but run, walk, jog, cycle, swim with me as we commemorate the 1965 March on Selma. Remember, they walked so that we can run.
1: I don't know. Uh, my, my question to you <laughs> is if you were at that... uh Visual did, where DeSantis showed up. What would have been your response if you were there in person?
0: Well, I mean, I think, I think uh, a peaceful show of um, resistance would have been called for. Um, I think I would have probably wanted to organize the people there to turn their backs to him while he sp- while he spoke. Um, but I would also want to talk to the governor face to face and really get a sense of and this has been really my question is this a gambit for power or do you actually believe this wow you know are you are you facilitating these things because it's the quickest way to become a star in the Republican party or are you facilitating these things to entrench your power in the state because it's an increasing uh, number of people who will move from out of the state and be, become transplants of Florida and support these policies, whether it's anti-vax or whatever it may be COVID conspiracies, white you know white supremacist rhetoric, um, you know, white grievance, whatever it may be. Is that the goal? Um, but I think also, man, I think it's just a reminder to everyone in power. That sixty years later, the the price continues to go up. You know how that that famous mm-hmm. Fat Joe phrase. You know, uh, yesterday's price is not t- you know today's today's price is different, right? Like yesterday's yeah, yeah, price yeah. is not today's price. Yep. It's that it, it's that concept and that idea. The more we delay inevitable repentance, the more we delay a true reckoning with race in this country the more we hide it from our children, the mm. more we remove mm. it from our monuments, the price, oh. the interest rises. And My the Lord. price will continue to rise to the place to where we will have to pay one way or another for what we have avoided. My Lord. Which one of the most insidious reasons why we have to really challenge those who are in theological power positions and Christian church power positions, pastors and bishops, et cetera, um, in our churches to clearly address this because what people are doing is we are we are we are really um desensitizing and anesthetizing people away from the inevitable cost. And the longer you wait, the bill will come due at some point. It's just getting higher and higher and higher. Oh my God for every instance of racial and racist entrenchment that we choose to double down on. And I hope the governor recognizes and everyone recognizes that if there is any good faith left in him in order to actually address this, if he truly is just simply misguided with intentions of doing what he feels is right, you will have this conversation. You will be at these vigils more and more often As you institute policies that, mind you, not just simply allow for the erasure of Black history, but also which is the double narrative of things, which is the force multiplier, so to speak, is you are allowing people to carry weapons. Come on, with with permit. Come on, You, you don't need it anymore. So it's like, well, well, fam, like if 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 you're making weaponry accessible, and you're giving them the logical radicalization to use it against people, violence will ensue. And all the peaceful demonstrations that we have and all of our desire and good-natured intentions to live in peace and harmony will not overcome what is the low hum of racial entrenchment and you know racist rhetoric in this country that continues to persist and y'all we haven't even hit 2024 yet
1: lot of mercy
0: you already I'm see you already see what's happening with these election. candidates they're talking about white supremacy in the kkk and let me tell you education. something Vivek
1: Ramaswamy and, and and I don't even want to say his name much cuz we already given him too much airtime is out there saying the NRA was critical to black civil rights and black freedom the national rifle association and he's out there trumpeting that like like it's fact, just because he says it loud. And that's just one candidate, right? And you just named it perfectly. You gave the perfect example of how uh, these leaders are creating a permission structure. Because here's DeSantis and his administration m- making guns accessible, and now you don't even need a permit to conceal carry it. And so it's like it's like it's like a a, a an adult. Leaving out a whole bowl of candy at Halloween with no one monitoring it, Mm -hmm. and then the kid grabs handfuls and handfuls and just eats it, and they get sick. and And the person's like, "Well, I didn't make them eat it, but you just Mm -hmm. left out there Mm -hmm. for them to grab all these toxic things that are going to make them sick, right?" And 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 on a deadly scale, so much that's what's happening. And another thing about DeSantis. (laughs) He went to Edward Waters University and pledged a million dollars to harden the campus, a million dollars for security. And that really gets me fired up because they need the million dollars but it would have been much better if that had come on the front end before any threat of a mass shooting that they could use to hire more faculty, more staff, more digital infrastructure for their students, facilities, whatever. All HBCUs need more funding because we're dealing with historic underfunding. But now the seven-figure pledge comes to only uh, be applied to more security measures instead of-
0: Which will inevitably, in some cases, actually end up overcriminalizing the same Black uh, bodies.
1: <laughs> yes. Can we say that?
0: Can we say that?
1: Yes. And, and, and obviously, this is personal to me because I teach at Simmons College of Kentucky, go Falcons. It's a historically Black college. And had that occurred on an HBCU, the terror- that would have acutely affected the approximately 100 HBCUs across the country would be incalculable incalculable yeah, yeah. and it it it, it 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 tragically and chillingly might only be a matter of time the way these things are going because clearly many of these leaders are not taking decisive action policy-wise to prevent these kinds of things um, but but just the idea, like they come to number one, they target the places where we gather. Dollar General is is very controversial because it comes into low income communities. It mm-hmm. prices out yes. local stores and grocery stores. It doesn't have healthy food. Most of everything there is processed and canned and boxed and all of that stuff. But it's in our community. So this man, this this is a young man knew this is where we congregate. And he also knew an HBCU, like it's literally in the name. And this is precisely when, I'm sorry, i got so much to say. It's it's This is precisely when HBCUs, the importance of them is actually heightened because mm-hmm. it's one of the few yes. places where you can freely get the kind of education that we need to confront these kinds of racial terrorist attacks and these kinds of white supremacist Ideologies. I'm teaching African American history. There's another course called African American Experience. We have our president who says, I want our students to come out social justice minded, like it's embraced, celebrated, elevated at HBCUs in, in, in cases where at PWIs, predominantly white institutions, this is a battle. And many administrators are fearful and they don't, they're, they're firing professors like Professor Julie Moore at Taylor University, Professor Sam Jokel at Palm Beach Atlantic. They're suppressing it at places like Grove City College and Hillsdale College and all of these things, right? And so the importance of an HBCU is only getting higher and higher in this age of suppression. And can you imagine a white supremacist, violent terrorist targeting an HBCU in this moment? It would be even more devastating. Uh, Because of the context that
0: we're in. (sighs) This is why every instance of Black terror and violence hits us at home. And it strikes our hearts. Because there is a web that this country has allowed to be created. That we as a people have allowed to be created. And that web... Is so layered and there's so much that happens within it that it really overwhelms us. Um, and I feel overwhelmed, Jay. I feel overwhelmed. I do. I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. You know, the prayer that I prayed this morning was full of angst uh, because you don't experience these things. And then this is on top of what we experience interpersonally already. Uh, mm-hmm. This is on top of, um, you know, and I, I'll, <laughs> here we are. This is on top of, this is past the mic. This is on top of being invited to speak at a Christian school. My Lord. And then them having a conflict that they tell me about a few days before I'm scheduled huh. to speak. What a and, coincidence. And when I ask what the conflict was, I never get a response. Uh huh. So maybe this yep. was the the maybe it was this or not. Maybe it was what I say or not. Maybe it was someone didn't want me to speak or not. Maybe it's my comments on Christian schools or not. And I told them originally, "Are you sure?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're like, no, you've spoken here before. I'm like, you sure? Okay, well, uh, you know, let me think about it. Came back around. I said, hey, for the black students that are there, exactly. You know, I, I I'd love to just encourage them. I know some of them that go to that school. So I'm thinking in my head, yeah, let me do that. And then this is what, on top of all that, we have hate crimes. On top of all that, we're not safe when we shop at a store that shouldn't be there in the first place, probably. Mm -hmm. On top of, on top of, on top of, it just wears us down. And so my encouragement to all of us who are Black and Christian and in this space is don't deny and don't ignore what the body is saying. Mm -hmm. And don't ignore what you're feeling. And don't ignore the necessity of silence. Don't ignore the necessity of screams and, and tears and wailing. Don't ignore it. Don't ignore the necessity of anger and frustration righteous indignation for what this country continues to ignore. Don't ignore it. Don't ignore how this makes you feel. And it's hard because sometimes it happens so much that there have been incidents that I've even missed because I'm like, I just, I can't keep up. In the midst of trying yep. to survive at life, I missed two or three incidents. And then I look up and I'm like, oh, this happened? That happened? Oh, I didn't even yep. mention it. and. It's overwhelming, but there is yet and still, there are voices and there are communities and there are spaces where we will be able to be ourselves and we will not stop creating those spaces and sacrificing for those spaces to exist and investing in those spaces and fighting for those spaces. We will not stop. We will not stop. And that's the hope. The hope in all of this is we're not going to stop. That's it. And for Angela and for AJ and for Gerald, their lives mattered. And their families lost precious loved ones. And we're not going to stop saying those names. And we're not going to stop pointing out this injustice. And we're not going to stop identifying and revealing the demonic principality of white supremacy. And the the nefarious, devilish scheme of this permission structure, we're not going to stop because we recognize that our God is a God of justice. And it didn't happen in this scenario, but justice, we believe, will come. We believe there will be a day where this does not exist, but not without fighting, not without an effort, not without 60 more years, not without so much more time, another generation of action and fierce urgency. We're always
1: looking for, okay, what's the action, right? What, what, what do we do in light of this? Number one, there's no singular momentary action that's gonna shift the whole thing. The reality is that profound change tends to happen with small acts Committed to over time. Okay. So let's disabuse ourselves of this idea that there's going to be one march, one protest, one law, one policy that's going to change everything in a in a in a matter of moments. That's not the reality, most likely. What we can do is commit to doing the right things the right way on a regular basis. So With this in particular, one very small thing, and yet, I think, profound action we can take is talk to the young people in our lives about it. So if you have children or or people you're a guardian over, if you have students or youth group members or whomever, don't let this get lost in the flood of the news cycle. Pause. Sit down. Ask them, did you hear about this? Ask them, what do you think about this? Ask them, what do you think we should do about this? Pray with them. Go to the history books with them. Because who knows, had this happened more often with this young man, the shooter, maybe he would have been dissuaded, maybe not. But what we need to do is create a culture and a context where A, we can talk about real issues of racism freely and knowledgeably. And number two, we need to make it clear to, our, to the young people in our lives where we stand and where we hope they'll stand as well. So that's one thing. The other is, as you were talking, Tyler, it reminded me of the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, where there are annual feast days. And some of those feast days are dedicated to remembering some of the most painful events in Israel's past, like being enslaved in Egypt. And what strikes me, I've I've said this before, is I like anniversaries because they become moments of civic remembrance. That is, as a nation, we can pause to remember. And it strikes me that we don't really have an annual time, to my knowledge, where we pause and remember the violence, the suffering, yeah. and the injustice a solemn of assembly. Black people. Exactly, a solemn assembly, a day of lamentation and intercession, and it's not about going out and changing the world. It's literally about grieving and giving ourselves the space to weep. To wail, to remember those who we've lost and what we've lost. And I wonder what that would do to us as a church, what that would do to us as a nation, if even for a single day we stopped all of our busyness and everything else that we were doing and said, This nation has a particular specific problem with anti-Black racism, and it has caused incalculable suffering upon not just Black people, but everyone uh, in in our nation. And we cry out to God, and we intercede for ourselves and each other right now. And maybe that would help. Maybe that would give us some space. We're doing it now on this podcast, But maybe if we do that collectively as well, sometimes that would be another way to keep that hope alive by not giving up. I don't Hmm. know. Just thinking. That's wise, brother. The struggle continues. Onward ever. Backward never.